Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. This episode of Origins is presented by MX Gold. The new American Express Business Gold Card makes earning rewards easy. Business Gold Card members automatically earn four times membership reward points on the top two select categories where they spend the most each month. Business Gold also provides access to a suite of solutions, including a built-in pay-over-time feature, giving business owners tools and flexibility they need to successfully run and grow their business. For full benefits and terms, visit amex.co slash business. I'm Jim Miller. Welcome back to Origins, Sex in the City. <laughs> really? Yes. Wait there, a second. Yes, yes. It's, it's embarrassing, but true. In the back of uh, Kiss and Tell, they have like a weird, almost like a grid where it has the four of us on the side and then all the men... And I don't know how they define the men. Maybe it was kissing. Maybe it was just, you know, a date that might not have kissing. And I think Charlotte's was the most. Wow. Because that one year, that one year. Oh, you were busy. It was, ugh, yeah. You were busy. Rough. God, that was so rough. There was one storyline where Kim said, this is too far. And it was her talking to a 13-year-old girl about a blowjob. And we changed it. Now we weren't just an entertainment sensation. We were actually the people who were part of the national dialogue about women and men and sex and feminism. When Maureen Dowd wrote a column about us or talked about Carrie and Big, I thought, because she was everything to me, Maureen Dowd, you know, and I thought, oh, wow, we've established ourselves somewhere in the world and in like in a meaningful way. And then we were on the cover of Time Magazine and I was like, oh, now it's a place where it's not just a boutique audience, but rather there's enough connection that people who don't have HBO have some understanding of what this is we're doing. I remember being in restaurants and at a table talking and I would observe, you know, some girl in the next table recording our conversation or if I'm on a subway, people sneaking a picture and, you know, me sitting there, you know, picking my nose or something. <laughs> was there ever a time when she wanted you to wear something and you thought that might be a bridge too far? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember a, a pink, um, of course it's pink, uh, a pink um, cashmere uh, sweater that literally looked like a 14-year-old girl's throw pillow. There was like a fashion signature to the show from the very beginning that was something that I felt was really important to essentially a part of Carrie's character. I thought she was somebody who would rather at the time buy an issue of Vogue than buy lunch if she had a choice. In episode one, Tutus, Tete-a-Tetes, and Taxis, we traveled from Candace Bushnell's original columns about nightlife in Manhattan, the foundation for Sex in the City, all the way to the end of the show's first season. Here, in episode two, we trace its complex climb to cultural high status and the impact it had on those who made it, the Trek and the series. We'll also hear how much the show's sexual freedom contributed to its popularity. Sex in the City, with an emphasis on the former. Of the four of you, whose character 
is closest to the actual person. It's so impossible now after 20 years to say. I mean, I kind of, like in some ways I would say Cynthia because she is super smart and she can be a contrarian and she's really witty and dry and funny. But she's also like a mom and loving and, you know, I mean, but so is Miranda. So I I don't know, I get very confused. I would also in some ways say Carrie is like Sarah, except that Sarah's been married for 20-something years. You know, it's hard when you know them. It's tough. But definitely not Kim. Kim is not like Samantha. I think that's important to say. In what way? She was never wild like that. And she was not as brash and whatnot. I mean, I think she said this herself. I hope she has. Um, I'm pretty sure she has. You know, she's kind of a homebody and, you know, very well read and, you know, like different energy. But I think she has said, I hope I'm right. She learned a lot from Samantha, her strength and her, you know, joy of life. I thought that I had very little in common with her. I felt like, you know, we both lead with our brain. And apart from that, there was almost nothing. She was single. I was not. I was a mother. She was not. We're both career people, but her kind of driven ambition was not something that I had. She was incredibly confrontational. I was incredibly conciliatory. But I think what happened over the course of the six years was they started including more and more of me in her. And I think she had an effect on me. I was in my early then to mid-30s. And I think that I was, that's a time when of, of tremendous, you know, maturing and gaining of confidence. And the show also had something to do with that. But I think what, what I was really startled was by the end of the show... I found myself saying, I'm exactly like her in almost every way. Writer-producer, Amy Harris. I think the answer is she had changed and the character had grown. And I think that was happening in the show. And I was very proud of that. We didn't sort of leave the characters as the archetypes they began as. So you recognize they had really become like human to people. I mean, there were some things that were hard. Like, for instance, <laughs> you know, the Trey episode where I have to try to tell him that I'm his wife and sex is important to me. I was scared. I was scared. I mean, Michael had come to me. We had discussed it at length about what we were going for and what it entailed and I felt confident in what he wanted. I felt like we were on the same page. I was just more scared about it because it's not something that you that you see a lot of, you know, on television. Then there was a terrible episode that I really hate still to this day <laughs> too, where um, the guy that I'm with shouts like, you know, horror, horror sorted things at me while we're having sex and uh, – Ugh, I didn't like that one. But we, when we did the read-through, it, uh, sometimes you would get a script and you would read it at home and the next day or the next two days we would have the read-through at lunch and you would then potentially voice some thoughts or concerns or maybe you'd write an email about a line or something and they'd talk to you. We were all in the same building. They were upstairs. We were downstairs at Silver Cup. But um, I hated that episode, right, for me, for Charlotte. And I'm sitting there and Cynthia is laughing her head off. And I was like, stop laughing, stop laughing. And then later I was like, I just, I just don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. And a part of the reason I didn't like it is because Charlotte never got mad. And that was the era where there was a time when they said to me, all of them, I think even Michael Patrick and Darren, there was an overlap with the two of them, and they said to me, Charlotte never gets mad. And I was like, well, that's just not possible. How, how could There's no human being who never gets mad. And they said, no, no, don't get mad. Don't get mad. And one time Darren said to me, you don't care. You don't care about these men. They're not the one. 
And I was like, okay. Like one time I had to reshoot a scene from the first season where everyone thought I seemed too upset about a breakup. Darren was like, you don't care. There's so many men out there for you. You know, you're just like on to the next. And I'm like, really? I mean, it just seemed really strange to me. And he was like, no, this is going to be ongoing. There's a bunch of guys. You're not going to, you don't need to cry about this guy. And I was like, oh, okay. That's so weird. <laughs> but so I go to the read through of the one where the guy's screaming in my face, obscenities. And I was like, something I don't I think, I think if I do it, Charlotte needs to at least get mad. I need to get permission from everyone that Charlotte's going to get mad about this one. And then he was like, no, it's hysterical. Do it. And everybody was like, it's so funny. It's so funny. You have to do it. And I hated shooting it. I hate watching it. I wish it didn't exist. And I wish she got mad. I wish she hit him. I wish she, like, raised up and, like, took him down. You know what I mean? But instead, she just looks, like, kind of befuddled at the coffee shop reliving it. One of the great things that the show did for all the women, but looking at it from my own viewpoint, as soon as Miranda would conquer some incredibly difficult thing, life would just throw her a curveball, something that she was completely unprepared for and had no background in. And she just, you know, had to find out how to become a mother, had to find out how to become a wife, had to remember the human part of her when she was so much of a, a warrior and she really forgot the internal part of herself, but life wouldn't let her do that. Life wouldn't let her get away without, you know, becoming a full, emotionally realized person. You know, we think of Miranda as being all, you know, so brainy, but I think Miranda cared too much, in a way, about Carrie, that she couldn't be objective about it. And the other women were better at sort of saying, well, that's Carrie, she's making her own mistakes. And just the love was too strong for Miranda. She just as if she was her lover or her child or her, you know, soulmate. You know what I mean? She just couldn't remove her opinions from the equation. In the season three, she was so brittle that I said to the other writers, we have to soften her now or she'll break. And that's when we brought Steve in. So it's this great chess game of developing these characters and pushing them as far as they could go. You know, luckily it's not my job, it's his job. I think that Miranda, unlike Carrie, thought of her lovers as kind of a domesticated part of her life, a contained part of her life that shouldn't wreck the rest of her life because the rest of her life was what was important. Mm. And what I think she found is that actually this person, Steve, that she thought she could keep in a box and he would just do what she wanted him to do, that actually it didn't work. That's what she had with Skipper, right? Right. But of course, she got really bored with Skipper immediately. And that actually Steve seems like he's amenable and he's going to go along, but he actually stands up for himself about the things that matter. Which then puts her on a journey to learn more. Completely, completely. She can't have her husband be the junior partner in the relationship. They have to be equal partners or it's not going to work. This isn't going to work, Steve. There's good stuff here. Not enough. A baby would have been a quick fix for something that can't be fixed. Because you don't want it to work. That is so unfair. I don't want to fight with you anymore. You think that I do? I don't know. Steve, I really tried. The whole thing's about acceptance. And the interesting thing about, like, Steve and Miranda... He accepted her so much that she couldn't even believe it. <laughs> she broke up with him a lot because 
why would anyone accept me? I'm terrible. And then when she wound up really loving him, it worked. Samantha, she pushed Smith Jarrett away and then he just kept saying, it's fine. You know, acceptance is everything. I mean, to me, the idea of one of the important shows that I think was very subtly important was when Aiden moved into Carrie's house and she said to the girls, every time I come home, he's up in my face. And I can't, I don't have a minute. And she winds up saying to him at the end of the show, when I come in this door, I don't need you to talk to me. Can you not talk to me for two minutes? For 20 minutes, don't say anything. And he says, okay. And she goes into her room, pulls the curtains, sits on the bed for 30 seconds of silence, and then goes, what are you doing? And it's just the idea of being able to ask somebody for something that you think you need. And then when you get it, you realize, okay, I don't really need it. I was just afraid to ask for it. Do I think that Darren and Michael were two men who knew what it was like to feel love or feel pain, were dating, were struggling through the labyrinth of looking for love? Yes. And I think they wrote about it in a really authentic way from the very beginning. Having said that, do I think as the show went on, the show deepened? Yes. Do I think that's because women were at it or because we as writers became closer and closer to one another? So our friendship started to look like the girls' friendships? I'm not sure. I'm actually really not sure. I mean... I think it's probably a combination of both because what I did feel as the seasons were going on, particularly when Miranda would be hard on Carrie about her affair with Big or running off to Paris, was we had become so close as a group that it was the issues we would have struggled with with each other, men or women. Show creator Darren Starr said a poignant goodbye to Sex and the City after the show's third season. Many a series has faltered, or worse, when its creator left. Not this time. I was running the show until the end of the third season. I don't know why sometimes he's out there in the middle of the second season. You know what? I really like was a very creatively restless, and still am, creatively restless guy. I knew the show was on great footing. I didn't need to be there day to day to sort of see it through. And, you know, I, had, I always think if I had stayed on Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place through the entire runs of those shows, I would have never done Sex in the City because those shows lasted for 10 years. And I just felt like there was a point for me where I just wanted to do other series. HBO wasn't, at the time, they weren't really like looking to do a lot of other series. I don't know. I think probably if I had a better agent or different agent or better deal makers, they would have figured out a way for me to do everything. But I really don't think of it as like leaving the show so much as sort of like keeping the show going in the hands of people that were really doing a brilliant job with me doing it, I felt like I had done Sex in the City. For me, it was three seasons of a show that I felt like I didn't need to be day-to-day on for the rest of the series, however many years that would be, and I hoped it was going to be many, and it was. And I think I give full credit to the writers that basically, you know, continue to do such a brilliant job. Darren thought it was done. He took a big deal from Mike Ovitz and said, I'm going, and I think this is basically as far as it can go and left. He had other ideas, other interests, other shows to do. And I was so thrilled to drive. Darren had all these opportunities and he was like, I'm going on now and I'm going to grow the empire. Michael, it's yours now. And Michael, because as you've said, he's vertical. He goes, okay, now everybody starts to grow. You stay archetypal 
Samantha's going to stay with her fundamental positions. Doesn't mean she can't change and grow and, and the same for everybody. And then also that gives more for Carrie to think about. What is that column every week? The more all those other women experience life in more dimension, and Michael loved that. Michael was always like, push on the bruise, push on the bruise, push on the bruise, you know, dig. What else exists for these people? And both people were enormously successful. They're completely different writer, producer, creators. Here is former HBO entertainment president, Carolyn Strauss. What Darren managed to do was create characters that Michael could then take the comedy to and run deeper with. Michael was very deft at using comedy to sort of take the characters on their emotional journeys. The show became much more specific to the emotional life of these four characters, which was my wheelhouse. And he wasn't interested. And by then, we, I had already started bringing in women, many women. Darren left. The show kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And we had a blast. And it just kept going and going and going and going. Nominated for over 50 Emmy Awards and 24 Golden Globes, Sex and the City won the Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series in 2001. All of the actresses were nominated for their performances over the years as well. Sarah Jessica Parker took home the Emmy for Outstanding Actress in a Comedy Series in 2004. Kim Cattrall, Kristen Davis, and Cynthia Nixon were all nominated in the Supporting Actress categories, with Cattrall winning a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, Series, Miniseries, or Television Film in 2002, and Nixon grabbing an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actress in 2004. Sex and the City pulled off the tidy trifecta for any TV show. Popularity, critical acclaim, and cultural impact, having landed with a sploosh on the cover of none other than Time magazine in 2000. Was there a moment when all of a sudden it clicked in that you guys were on the way to being the phenom? Not until the Emmy nomination. Not until the Emmy nomination, which was a while. That was a while. So, like, we did 13 without anyone seeing anything, right? So that kind of almost didn't count because no one knew we existed, really. I feel like we felt that we had an audience, but I feel like we felt like it was small, you know? And I feel like we felt like the establishment was kind of like, I don't know. And the Emmy nomination was a shock. Like, I remember that morning. We'd worked really, really late. We were really tired. My mother was calling me. She knows I worked all night. She's calling me to tell me about the Emmy nomination. And it was like... A huge deal. A huge, huge, huge deal. I think that was when we really were like, oh my God, this is bigger than we could have ever dreamt ever in a million hundred years. I tried really hard to not pay attention to chatter. As the streets filled as we shot and crowds would gather and eventually there were police barricades and hundreds of people watching everything we were doing, you felt that things had changed. But I never thought to myself, this is it, we've done it, we've made it, because it was always, especially for Michael and I, we were always struggling to make it better, to work harder, to find the next story, to get it all right, to fight for the things we thought were worth fighting for, to get one more day on the shooting schedule. Like, we were always in this wonderful, it wasn't a battle, we were always just in the work all the time, you know? So I just didn't like to listen to anything else because I felt like it would be distracting and it would confuse us. Here's Candace Bushnell. You know, I really thought that the show would end after two seasons when Carrie and Mr. Big break up. And I thought, God, this is so great. The show's been fantastic. And 
if it lasts two years, it lasts two years. But I think it was like right at that point that it started to take off. The beauty of Sex in the City and the miracle of it is that it's one of those shows that started out teeny, tiny, no big deal. Little, tiny impact. And as it grew through the writing and through the performances and the understanding, it started to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And most television shows start big and peter out. They're like, well, that first episode was great, and then they run out of stuff to do. And I felt so strongly that we were the opposite. As long as what I always believed was we couldn't repeat. So to me, it was just endlessly creative. We would paint ourselves into a corner, and instead of repainting the wall, coming back this way, the floor, we'd just go up the wall. The show was supposed to be about four single girls. I married Charlotte off because that's what would happen. If we didn't marry her off, there was no way up the wall. You just keep doing the same date story. So for me, I found endless possibilities. Then Michael Patrick took over. Then we were much more, I felt at least, much more included in terms of the storylines and whatnot. It wasn't so much that he would come and ask me what I wanted. We would have a meal before, like when the writers were in session and we hadn't gone back to work yet. And he would say, this is what we're thinking. What do you think about it? And I'd say like, amazing, you know, because usually that's how I felt. And then occasionally something would change and then he would come or call or say, let's have lunch or let's get together in your room or whatever and discuss. Like for instance, I was supposed to get pregnant at the same time that Miranda got pregnant. Charlotte was supposed to get pregnant at the same time. That was the original plan. And I was super excited about it because, of course, you know, you're playing this character every day and you want what the character wants. And I wanted what the character wants and I wanted to have Trey's baby. Do you know what I'm saying? So then he changed his mind because he said that he did not have enough stories to do two sets of pregnant stories. The idea had been to show two different mothering styles and the conflict and the different choices, which I thought sounded great, and I still think sounds great, because Charlotte and Miranda are really different, right? But then he was like, I just don't know how we're going to come up with this many storylines. For two of you, they've got to be different. And mothering, and I don't know that many, you know, in all of our writers at that point, none of them had children, all of the women writers who were at that that point, I think we had like eight. They didn't have children either. So we were all like, what are we going to write? So I was really sad, but I thought, oh, that's probably good because it's true that a lot of people try to have babies and can have babies. Little did I know that would come to be, you know, a huge, huge, huge storyline for Charlotte, and people still talk to me about it. When you make 94 episodes of anything, from the X-Files to the X-Factor, there's a lot of inventory in the warehouse to consider when trying to name a standout moment or two. The moment for me when Miranda buys her own apartment and has all these panic attacks about dying alone, that when the cat eating her face, you know. That, to me, I think Jenny Bix wrote that episode. I'm sure she did. And that was a real turning point for me in terms of now it's not all just fun and games. Now we're dealing with the flip side of Miranda's proud, assertive feminism. It's this terror of dying alone. And I was like, wow. It was the beginning of the character really having such depths and not at all just being for laughs. I used to say the mud fight and that whole section where after I'm telling Corbett at the table about, you know, she can reach me, I can never reach her. It's funny because it happens right after we have this fight in the mud, which was a lot of fun. 
But then I really enjoyed the one where uh, I'm with my wife at the furniture show where I run into SJ and Corbett. And then I get drunk, you know, and I put my drink on his, you know, <laughs> desk that he had made. And then I tell her it's not working and, you know, anyone is. I thought that was a lot of fun. I, I like that a lot. I like falling into the reservoir in Central Park. I liked all that kind of stuff. I didn't like any of the corny stuff. It's mostly the comic stuff that I liked the best. Right. And I could get it, you know. And I fought for it, too, because I was always, I don't want to be just this cool, detached guy, you know, who's an enigma. It's just too boring. I wanted some of that great humor that the show had, and I was worried that I wasn't going to get it. And uh, he gave me plenty of it. And we actually worked on, I mean, he was open to some suggestions that I would give and a couple of interesting things in my own life that I I didn't push on him, but I suggested. Might you remember one? Well, the whole thing with, which was one of my favorite stuff with the episode of where Big falls in love with this famous actress. And, and actually, I gave him the line. I said, she can reach me, but I can never reach her. I'm not going to give you the name of the girl that it was, but it, it was a very short thing, but that actually did happen, and he used it where Big Falls head over heels with a, you know, Hollywood starlet. And she just basically disappears on him and he drives him nuts. Michael was great at taking something and, you know, and, and not making it literally true, but then taking that sort of storyline and, and putting his own spin on it. Is there kind of like a favorite Charlotte moment or something that you did in the first sure, season? Sure, 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 sure. That's kind easy. Of really... That's so easy. That's so easy. So there's this little clip, and we used to show it at the award shows, and it worked every time, and I was so proud. But it's when Charlotte has gone out and gotten drunk or whatever. I can't remember what happened before, but she's all hung over the next morning, and they go to the coffee shop, and I'm, I'm not wearing any makeup. And I remember being like, oh, God, I'm going to look like hell. I was really worried. And, uh, my hair's a little crazy for Charlotte, and I say, I've been dating since I'm 15. Where is he? I love that moment. That moment worked every time they showed it, like even in a tiny clip. And when you can take a tiny, tiny excerpt out of something, and that joke works, and people laugh from like a – and it's not even like a joke exactly. I said it from a very sad place, but it got a laugh, and that's what's great. Do you know what I mean? Because I came from acting school. <laughs> I was like always trying to put a lot of emotion into everything. So I just tried to be like, if I was someone who really wanted to get married and I couldn't find the guy, how would I feel? You know, I tried to go deep and um, I went deep and sometimes going deep gets the laugh. I loved watching that with other people. It's exciting. For me, there was the scene, I don't remember what season it is, where we were at, I guess, Nathan Lane and Julie Halston's wedding in the Hamptons. And Cassandra Wilson was singing, and Kim and I were dancing with little Brady. And I guess, you know, we were, it was just like the moonlit night and these big white globes of light. And it was just, Stanford was there, and, and Mario was there. And it was just like it didn't get any better than that. It was the very end of the season, and it, you felt like you were in a modern-day Great Gatsby. You know, Sarah Jessica and I were very good friends long before the show, and I remember a very specific night that I just, I'll cherish forever. We had to be leaving Lincoln Center. What they wanted to have, like, 10,000 extras walking behind us. Now, obviously, they can't buy 10,000 extras. So what we did was we set up the shot at 8 o'clock in the Lincoln Center courtyard there. 
And then Sarah and I went out. And it was just like a continuation of our evening. We went and walked around. We had a drink. And at 10 o'clock, the ballet, the opera, and the state theater all get out. We have one chance to get the shot. So at that moment, all the doors of all three buildings open, and literally 10,000 people are walking behind us, and they call action, and we start, and we do the scene. And that, to me, was like the quintessential Sex in the City memory to me. One of my favorite scenes that I ever wrote was Carrie and Aiden when he had moved in and they had to clean her closet out and she finds Rogaine of his. And it's like, don't touch my stuff, don't touch my stuff. It was a really nicely written comic scene of the two of them. Really liked the dialogue, really liked the dynamic. I went to the set, Sarah Jessica had on for this scene in her house, a circus top hat and a ruffle. He had on a shirt that said, chastity. I looked at the clothes. All I could see was chastity and circus hat ruffle. I looked at the clock. They surprised me. They would sometimes secretly surprise me. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it wasn't because I was always safeguarding what's going to upstage what clothing wise. I said to Pat, it's too much. And she said, well, I could take her back to the thing. It'll be another hour. So I was like, all right, let's do it. Looked at it. Too much. Rewrote the entire clothing, did it another day. Carrie had on a tube top and a necklace, and he had on just a T-shirt, and it was fantastic. Well, wardrobe was everything for this part, as far as I was concerned. I used to call myself cheesy, but now I find that actually some good actors that I respect do the same thing. I do work a little bit externally and then go internal, and this character was basically a very special creation of Pat Field. She says that in the course of the show and the movies, while she had long discussions and meetings with the producers about all the other characters, their looks, that she was given free reign with Stanford. So Stanford is really Pat Field's baby. So we would have these marathon sessions. Literally, for every episode, it would be a solid half-day wardrobe fitting for Stanford. We loved dressing Willie Carson. <laughs> he, he loved the clothes. He played the role very well. He said he once vetoed a pink sweater, though, that you wanted him to wear because he said he felt like he couldn't pull it off. That's what I mean. If the actor can't pull something off, you know, I would never force them into anything because... As I say, they're in front of the camera, not me. Pulling it off means that the actor could put it on and feel positive about it, feel inspired by it. I've had a wonderful experience when I did Devil Wears Prada with Stanley Tucci, who said, you know, when he came for his first fitting, he really didn't have a clear picture of the character. And after the fitting, he knew the character immediately. Were you around for a wardrobe malfunction? Yeah, we had, uh, I remember one fashion show that we were shooting, and the girl, like, her whole bottom half had fallen off, and she didn't know it. She's walking down the runway. And Sarah's, like, kicking me. She goes, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> I also kind of felt like the whole fashion aspect of it became the tail that wagged the dog, you know? All this shit about the shoes, and I don't know, it became like a costume drama, you know? Talk about what it's like for a man to be in a show with women and that sort of overriding stylistic principle is, yeah, you're like, I'm tired of that. 
but I didn't have to deal with it. I, you know, I would just wore suits that were, you know, kind of nice and all that. The part I didn't like was, was making him fussy, you know, but that's cause I'm a bit of a slob and a, <laughs> just the antithesis of this guy. And it was painful sometimes. I hadn't even done a full lap around the party. And you know, I don't play favorites with my shoes, but these were very special. Who would steal shoes from a party? Someone size seven with excellent taste. Why in the hell did you take your shoes off to begin with? We had to. For their kids. Apparently we drag things in on our heels that make children sick. What is Casper? Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. Casper products have been designed by humans and for humans. They are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. The experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep surface that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. And let's face it, you spend one third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Casper's breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google, Casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress. One of the coolest things about Casper is it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that size box. There's free shipping and returns throughout the U.S. and Canada. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-a-trial. And now you can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash origins and using origins at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. That's casper.com slash origins for $50 towards select mattresses. 23andMe is named for 23 pairs of chromosomes that make up our DNA. It's a personal genetic service that helps us understand what our DNA is, and it can tell you a lot about you and your family story. This Thanksgiving, after your great uncle has tryptophan and is distracted by football, he might be tempted to talk about your family ancestry. Problem is, he may not be remembering it all too well. With 23andMe, there's no guesswork. You can see how your DNA breaks out across 150 regions worldwide. You can trace parts of your ancestry to a specific group of individuals from a thousand plus years ago. You can even opt in and connect with DNA relatives and find other 23andMe customers who share your DNA and ancestors. Discover the origins of your maternal and paternal ancestors and how they moved around the world over thousands of years. This is why we at Origins love 23andMe. It's all about the ultimate origin, where we all came from. Now through Thanksgiving, 23andMe Ancestry Service Kits are only $49 per kit when you buy three or more kits. Order your 23andMe Ancestry Service Kit at 23andMe.com slash origins. That's the number 23andMe.com slash origins. I lost my orgasm. In the cab? What do you mean lost? I mean, I just spent the last two hours fucking with no finale. It happens. Sometimes you just can't get there. I can always get there. Every time you have sex? She's exaggerating. Please say you're exaggerating. The show had sex in its name and was on pay cable. So anything went, right? Not quite. Sex in the City's sexual path had more twists and turns than Pete Davidson's romantic life. People used to say to me, isn't it pornographic? I was like, 
I don't think you masturbate to this show. It's the opposite. I think your dick goes in watching this show. It's like, oh, it's all so scary to be naked in front of people and they don't love you. And how do you get out of the room if it's bad sex? And all that stuff was really interesting. And what I always loved about it, it was never, ever dirty. It was never dark. I mean, I'm Irish Catholic. I was raised by nuns. So the fact that the biggest creative explosion in my career was writing about sex is not lost on me. The amount of shameful fuel, rocket fuel that came out of me, just knowing that I was exploring this very dark area. But you already explored it within yourself about your own idea. Yeah, 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 right? yeah. So in a way, that's an extension. It's not, well, it, you already taken the big first leap about, about being, being honest. Being sexual being, at all. Right, right. You know, I mean, I'm Irish Catholic. So in Irish Catholic family, the joke is like coming out that you have sex at all. Not that you're coming out as a gay person. It's like, you know, I have sex. <laughs> that's the shocker. I'm having sex. You don't say that either. So the idea that it, it all became just a wheelhouse of what I wanted to say about being an outsider being somebody claiming their own right to not remember. When we were doing the show, there was not a thought that gay people would ever get married, ever. So we were the eternal single people. So it was so easy to fight for those four ladies because I was always going to be single. I was somebody who was never going to be married. I understood that there's something that is not available to me, which is what they were f afraid of, something not happening for them. And then, of course, the Samantha part was the warrior belligerent, I don't ever want it if I can't have it, you know, part of me. It's okay? Okay. You're Audrey Hepburn. Oh, it's... I'm so excited about this wedding. We're going to do everything according to tradition. We're going to smash the glass and the signing of the ketubah. The horror? Be careful. God forbid you fall off the chair. Oh, the horror. The horror. And how about the actual scenes themselves? You had some pretty out there scenes. Was that a learning curve for you? Or? Yeah, I mean, I certainly had never done anything like that before. I've never done anything like that since. I thought it was important. I guess the thing that made it less difficult was that we were in our home terrain, right? It was our show. And so as uncomfortable as we might have been, the poor men coming in were far more uncomfortable. And that I always felt like, just speaking from my own character, that the sex scenes, I mean, sometimes they were romantic and sometimes they were sexy and often they were like horrible and uncomfortable. I mean, for the characters, not I'm talking about the actors. Oh, right. And so there was that realism about it. So it wasn't like I felt like I was having to that all human feelings were welcome in those scenes because often they were comedically, you know, bad. What was happening, the sex was happening. With the popularity of Sex and the City globally burgeoning, everyone involved had to get used to more and more attention, sometimes to their displeasure. Kristen Davis had lived on the hit Melrose Place. Cynthia Nixon had won a Tony and had been up and down the lights of Broadway. Chris Noth had collared many a suspect on legendary Law & Order and Sarah Jessica had already been a successful actor for two decades, but none of them were prepared for anything like the ultra-fabulous, far-out fame that Sex and the City began to bestow. It just seems to me that people come to this town, we're sitting here in L.A., and they have their dreams and everything else, and it just seems like you won. 
I should write that on my mirror in the morning to look at. It's so funny that you say that I appreciate that. And, and sometimes I, I feel that, but sometimes I don't. It's so strange. It's odd. It's odd. I mean, it happened slowly, which was good. And then also, I think for me, it was really good that I had been around Melrose. So I had gotten to watch Heather and Courtney and people who were much more famous than I was. And they had all had a, a variety of styles and reactions to it that I'd gotten to kind of observe. And then Sarah Jessica, of course, had been, you know, maybe not like Carrie-level fame, but but certainly famous in Matthew. So they're very grounded, you know, about it. And I think that was helpful for me. But I was alone a lot with my dog. I had a big golden retriever at the time. And, um, you know, I used to be able to walk around the park, Central Park, you know, no problem. And then as the success grew, people would, like, kind of run at us. Like, they'd come running, and my dog would be like, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> because it's strange, you know. It becomes a little strange, especially because we were in Manhattan and we were of Manhattan, you know, and trying to exist there. Did you also have to become aware at some point of, like, people taking pictures even when you're... You know, I didn't really think about that. And then, like, I went on a vacation and then then my lawyer was like, hey, there's pictures of you at blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? Uh, Yeah, it was weird. It's still weird. It's still weird. I just started staying home a lot, you know. That's what we all do. (laughs) Not all of us. Not all of us. Not uh, Cynthia Nixon, <laughs> but the rest of us. When the show was starting out, what was it like in terms of um, starting to be recognized in a different way? I mean, obviously, you had acted before, and but this is a bigger blip on the radar screen for all of you. Yeah, I mean, certainly the awards shows and the paparazzi and all that kind of stuff was very different. Uh, I had been nominated for some things, but nothing compared to this. But for me, it was when they put us on the cover of Time magazine. I mean, that was so unbelievable, you know, with the headline, Who Needs a Husband? Because now we weren't just an entertainment sensation. We were actually the people who were part of the national dialogue about women and men and sex and feminism. Capital Z zeitgeist. Right. And also the focus on on fashion and bodies and glamour. That was completely foreign to me. Did you make peace with it? It was hard. I had never had to worry about these things before. You know, my agent had to try to get me to put on lipstick, you know, to go to my audition. So this is a whole other ball field. But we had Pat Field. Like, you know, if there's ever you want to be in fashion boot camp, there is no better, warmer, wiser, funnier, more glamorous person to lead you through it. But how about after you're on the cover of Time magazine... It's a Saturday, let's say, and you just want to get on the subway and meet a friend at the museum or something. Do you have to, like, think about a wait? I mean, if you're smart, you give it a little bit of thought. But, you know, it's New York. It's New York. Sarah Jessica's experience is obviously very different. Everywhere she goes, she's inundated. But she also takes the subway. And, you know, it is New York. You can move around pretty well. So it was intense. And, you know, there's that whole thing where people are like, oh, no one cares in New York, which is not true. So that was odd. That was odd. And I remember having a few really odd times. Like one time a guy got stuck out downtown in the rain and like just looked like a wet rat. And I took the subway to get back home because you couldn't get a cab. And all the high school kids were on the subway because they'd just gotten out. And I'm sitting there just depressed and wet, soaked, you know, just 
depressed and this kid next to me decides that I might be mean. He tells his friends very loudly, hey, hey, that's that girl on Sex and City. And then the other guy's like, that's not her. She's ugly. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what do I do? What do I do with these youngsters? So I just sat there and I kind of glared at them like I gave them the side eye or whatever. And the whole ride, they debated whether I was or was not, in fact, me. It was strange. But you never said you were. No, I was not going to engage since they thought I was ugly, no. I'm still dealing with it. I mean, the whole Mr. Big thing has got real legs to it, (laughs) for better or worse. I've stopped even thinking that I'm going to outrun it and replace it with another role, because no matter what I do, and I've done quite a bit, it never seems to top that particular perception of that character, especially for middle-aged women or older women. I've definitely become more guarded because of it, but at the same time, I know where not to go, you know? I know what restaurants not to go to, although you can be surprised sometimes. I have a man who loves me, and you have a wife who loves you. Don't talk about him and her like it's you and me. You have no right to do this. You can't just come back into my life and fuck it all up. Well, I think there are two people doing the fucking here, Carrie. Sarah Jessica Parker's agent, Kevin Huvain. It became international. And that was very, very rare for a TV series to go out into the marketplace and have people in Japan love it, South America. I mean, and then at that time, you you could also notice the effect it was having because the territories of where HBO and Sex and City played made her more valuable for movies because of her presence. International financing. International financing and endorsements. When she did the hair stuff, most people did commercials just in Japan. And you didn't have the internet at that time flooding you with that stuff. So Jodie Foster, Brad Pitt, Arnold Schwarzenegger, they did commercials in Japan, but they never did anything in the States. When she did the first commercial, there was not a ripple of how it was going to affect her feature career. I thought, okay, we're on to something now. The show has positioned her to be a global star where she's not going to have any limits. She can do whatever she wants. It happened gradually, and it also became such a media darling. Even if people were not watching it, if you read any magazine or newspaper, it seemed like the entire world was watching it. But, you know, you have to remember, even at its height, maybe six million or something was a huge number. But... If you picked up any magazine or or any newspaper, you would think that our audience was, you know, 80, 90 million people. People were having full-on conversations about what it meant and if it was appropriate and, you know, how we feel about women and women finding their voice and blah, 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 that who had never seen an episode of the show. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. People like my mother, like a very stuck-in-her-ways New Yorker, like really proud New Yorker. She certainly didn't have HBO, and she would have full conversations like, I, that show's not for me. I don't know any women like that. And she'd never seen an episode. And so as it just became more and more in the zeitgeist, what we did notice, certainly by the second season, was that it wasn't, for lack of a better word, it wasn't as fun at work because we had to be taking it much more carefully because it was like oh people are watching this now at the beginning it was like oh this is really fun this is a fun show look at us we're in a nightclub at the time we're like we're all smoking cigarettes because that's what people do in new york 
<laughs> nightclubs. We're drinking at the club. We're having the scene. And then by the second season, certainly towards the end of it, it was like, oh, hold on. This line is very careful, and this one has to be very careful, and whatever. It, it, was, it was less free and easy. I remember seeing the promo for More, More, More when they were doing those, how do you like it, how do you like it? And I think that was the beginning, like the poster of Carrie in Times Square with the big thing on that just said Carrie. I was like, what? Wow, this is gone. We went through like the matrix now. We're in this other density. The first poster was like her with a laptop. The next one was in a martini glass. And then that third one was like, boom, odd. It took almost a pop art leap. And it was right around the time that the relationships were getting heartbreaking for her and Big. We were so grateful for it. Even at the time, we just were doing what we wanted to do. You know, Caroline and Chris would come around. They'd be like, yeah, it looks great. You know, give notes to Darren, eventually to Michael Patrick. But we didn't have any point of reference. It's not like we could look to any other television show and say, well, they've had success and this is similar, so therefore we might. Or, mm, that wasn't very fruitful, so we might be in some sort of danger. There was just nothing else like it. And yeah, that was like a virtue. And the thing that I think we all missed the most, as it connected more with an audience, was just the privacy or the anonymity of being on the streets of New York and just shooting the way we shot. And I really kept my head down. And you have to remember in those days, there was no social media. Internet was used to communicate personally more, like emails but it wasn't a source of information. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. shit, shit. It's okay, it's okay. No, it's not okay. My parents said that if they cut me smoking pot in the house again, I'd have to sleep on a cot in the comic book store. Wait, wait. What? Stop. What? The chicken wings, if they see billions of chicken wings, they're gonna know. We were smoking the pot. Fuck the fucking chicken wings, man. Where'd we put the fucking pot? I was with a friend this summer at a store, helping her pick out a couch. It took 10 minutes to grab a salesperson, and then he disappeared for another 10 minutes after we asked what other colors were available. When we finally got to order, only then did we find out it would take 10 weeks and the delivery charges were going to be more than $100. I wish she had known about Article Furniture then. Article is an online-only furniture company that offers great selection, great prices, and most importantly, great quality. So several weeks ago, I went on to Article.com and got my first look at the Scandinavian simplicity of Article's modern furniture. Clean lines, awesome fabrics, and their pricing was downright surprising. Turns out that when you don't have to pay for showrooms and salespeople, you actually can price things lower than your competition. I wound up picking out several items, and Article has a flat rate of $49. And because my items were in stock, they arrived within two weeks. By the way, Article offers a 30-day return policy as well, so you can actually live with your furniture for a month before deciding if it works for you. Now, Article is offering our listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim this, visit article.com origins. That's all it takes. Go to article.com origins and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com origins to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more at article.com. It's a neck massager. You expect me to believe that women buy these to help their sore necks? It's a neck massager. Fine. I'd like to return this neck massager. What's wrong with it? 
It failed to get me off. It has a warranty and it just stopped. Made the saddest little sound. Perhaps you wore it out. Well, honey, it wouldn't be the first one. Michael Patrick King and his female writing staff turned Sex in the City's writer's room into a place of confessions, respect, and trust. Just as Candace Bushnell's writings had been used to lay the foundation for the series, now the real world of these female writers, coupled with Michael Patrick's own thoughts and relationships, made for a living lab of stories and scripts. All of a sudden, it seemed like there were women moving to New York City to be Carrie Bradshaw. Actually, I've spoofed that idea in a couple of my books. One of them is One Fifth Avenue. There's a character named Lola Fabricant that she's kind of a Kardashian type, but she also watched every episode of Sex in the City. And she's that girl who comes to the city and she wants to live in an apartment like Carrie and her poor parents from the Midwest have to pay. And the mother just can't believe that this little apartment is $3,000 a month or 4000 a month. So, I, you know, I always want to say to these girls, you know what, if you really want to come to New York and be a writer, read the book because that's what it's like. It's harsh. It's hard. You know, we see the pain on the TV series, but what you don't see are the agonies and the self-doubts and the questioning and, you know, probably some really ugly moments that it takes to become Carrie Bradshaw, you know? It's not a walk in the park. And it's not a walk in the park being Samantha. No. Or any of them, actually. You know, there's a lot of struggle. I had a writing room by the end filled with six women and me. And we dug and dug and dug and dug. And I was so in love with the characters that I was very protective of them. And what would happen is we would get together and we would create the season. And then I would do my preview for Sarah Jessica as a producer. Here's what we're doing for the season. And she would sit there and laugh and swoon. And I'm a good salesman. I would tell her the story and she would sit and laugh and swoon and go, oh my God, that's great, that's great, that's great. If there was ever a problem, we would talk about it. I presented the season to the ladies. They never told me what they wanted. As a matter of fact, there was one storyline where Kim said, this is too far. And it was her talking to a 13-year-old girl about a blowjob. And we changed it. Sarah Jessica and I, at some point, went and did big riffs on how Carrie would say something. But then, of course, Sarah Jessica was the executive producer. And when the scripts come in, that's different than pitching the series. She could say, I don't know if this section works, and then I'd rework it. The and over- she would say that? Yeah, she'd say this whole section, I'm worried about this. And I'd say, yeah, it doesn't work. We'll fix it. It happened in such a good way, meaning it wasn't thrust upon me. I didn't take on too much too soon. I mean, I really would just sit in meetings and listen. And I had so little to contribute early on that I just mostly listened. So that by the time I felt comfortable adding to the conversation, it had become pretty focused we were working so seamlessly. I mean, we argued, and but we had really productive arguments. Like, it's such an interesting thing. Like, we had arguments, and we were fine. You know, like, we really could disagree about things. But, like, what would be things. an example of something? Like a storyline? or No, the way we were going to work or shoot something or issues of budget or what to fight for or pulling Michael back from 
his massive dreams. You know, you sometimes have to say no to him. And it's really not pleasant because Michael is, he will say, and this is the way I function now on television, is like, if you get to be on TV and you get to be on HBO, then you better be a thoroughbred. You better cross that finish line bloody. Like, you can't give up. You don't turn your back. You don't give up on details. You never compromise. You fight for the rain. You offer to pay for it yourself if you have to. No detail is too small. Nothing should be ignored. Everything matters. Everything matters. And that's how you make really good television. That's when you get people watching an episode over and over. And those details start hitting. Oh, my God. Now I see why she did that Why in episode two. And then in episode six, she did that. And you brought that, that necklace. I can't believe you did that. Michael was constantly threading the needle, constantly going back, circling back, going over that stitch again, laying a stitch for a reason. And not plotty, but detail, life details. So telling Michael no is the worst. And you only tell him no as his producing partner when you know it cannot happen. When you know you're in Morocco and it's hour 17 and you can't get anybody to do anything else. That is it, Michael. Don't yell. But these are, like, for Michael, it's everything. So she was right. Yeah. They were always right. They were always right. If we went to the table, and I'm not kidding you, if we went to a table, everybody did their best. If we went to a table and a joke didn't work, I would instantly remove it. And they would go, no, no, I can do it better. And I'd go, no, you can't. It's a joke. It's too big for that character. It doesn't work. If something didn't work, we knew it was the writing because they were amazing. And you know, by the end, they were the Rockettes. By the end, the show became so dependent on the beauty element, the clothes, the hair, the makeup. The scripts were so aggressive in filming because we wanted so much story for each character. So there was no rehearsals because all the time was used up in hair and makeup. As the show evolved, did you feel in a way that the stories and the dialogue were having to compete with no. the visual element? No, no, I knew it was part of it. I mean, they would come to the set knowing that all of our like exploration time was already gone because of three hours of hair and makeup and clothes. It just went. But the beauty of it was the lines were like couture. They were fit perfectly for them. So they would just slip the dialogue in and we'd go and they were so brilliant. There was no Twitter. So what we used was our own mechanism. And I do have a sense to think, I'm tired of this. Let's get rid of him now. The audience will be up shocked for a, a couple of days, but they'll want him to but break up. But it wasn't up. because you were hearing from the audience, no. so to speak. It was just like, what's our taste? We'd all be in a room. And first of all, the storylines were all like, what are we experiencing right now in this moment? What are we feeling? What are we feeling? And then how can we make it funny? And we assumed if it was happening to seven people in the room, if seven people weren't like, I never heard of that idea. If we were all laughing and acknowledging it, we figured that's in the zeitgeist already. What was your news? Oh, uh, Burger broke up with me on a post-it. On a post-it? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. Read it and weep, my friends. I'm sorry I can't. Don't hate me. The motherfucker's concise. We were in New York. 
So whatever was happening, we put right into the show, which is why it feels so authentic. If we were going to Bungalow 8, if we were going, walk by the Gay and Lesbian Center one day and I saw Gay Prom, I was like, that's a show. I went and said, we're doing the Gay Prom. Samantha, Carrie and Stanford go to the Gay Prom. It was of the moment. That's why it worked. It was of the moment. One of the tickets to admission to that room was a real sense of openness and vulnerability almost. Completely, but not even vulnerability. Openness, vulnerability, with an overview of how it could be comic. It wasn't just about coming in there and being miserable. It was about someone coming in and saying, "Uh, one time my doorman broke up with me for the guy. You have to already have a comic view of it. It's not just pain. It's pain with an overview, or else it's just pain. I mean, we screamed. The worse the stories were, the more... These comic people who were living them, but you know, comics, comedy writers, they feel the pain, but almost instantly in survival, frame it. So you don't just lay around, oh, no one loves me. It'd be like, no one loves me, and I was wearing the wrong culottes. You know, I mean, there's like a thing with it. So the room was very personal, incredibly frank, incredibly fun, incredibly honest. I always saw the room as, I see a writing room to this day, as a courtroom. And if I want an idea, I want someone to say, that's impossible, that would never happen. And then I try to find a way. I remember when I was bringing Aiden back, I wanted to bring John Corbett back. And we had broken up with him. I remember the first time he saw me was like, kind of lumpy and he had long hair and turquoise. and. Two of the writers are like, ah, oh, we're done with him. I don't want to see him again. And I said, why do you not want to see him? They go, ugh, he's so granola. And, ugh, and, ugh, and, ugh. So I said, well, then we'll bring him back not that way. And I said to John Corbett, John, we want to bring you back. You got to lose 20 pounds, cut your hair, and be rock hard when you come back. And he goes, I knew I was a fatty, and started laughing. And, but I listened to the fact that they didn't want him there. And therefore, we got that whole other Aiden, which was like surprising. But you have to listen to what the room is. You have to listen to the dissenting voices and then figure out how you can have it all. But you had, those six women felt like they could say anything to anything. you about what... Yeah. It was a gives. very highly respected room in that I loved the writers. So if someone did a, a first draft, I would give them really copious notes if they needed it, and then they would do a great second draft. And then I would go, yeah, I just feel like I, feel like I want to do a little bit more in that area, and then I would add to that scene. I would add to that script. And also, in the writing room itself, when we were pitching out the shows, there was an enormous amount of details coming out of people's mouths. And I was on my computer constantly, making sure that the phrases that people were saying wound up in the show. If they did start crying, how they cried. I would try to get those exact words in and then make sure that they got in the script. So I was already in the scripts, even in the forming stage. It was really fun to have brilliant writers that you could sometimes make the whole Sunday, sometimes just put the cherry on the Sunday, because they were really special souls. Obviously, a great deal of focus during the show's run, and happily ever after, has been on the women of Sex in the City, and the sex of the women of Sex in the City. But what was the approach to male characters? Were they just there as vehicles for the women's growth, the way so many females have been for men in movies and TV? Or was there, possibly, more to it than that? 
I'm going to say something now that is kind of dangerous. Women perceive straight men as good and bad guys. There's a bad guy in every straight guy that's going to hurt them. And then there's And they don't mind it? They're worried about it. And that's why Carrie says in the movie, he's a bad guy. And the idea of the danger of, am I going to win? Or is the bad guy going to get me? You know, am I going to win him over? Or is he going to win me over? With Carrie and Big, if Big had been that way, if he had given her total security and total accessibility, would she have then gotten bored with him? The addition of Aiden was the, oh, there's another one? And then for the audience, it became, oh, you have a choice. Are you an Aiden girl or a big girl? I mean, that became such a thing for the viewers. Each of these men are in the show for one reason, to help the female characters evolve. Big's unacceptance of Carrie is there to fuel her own acceptance of herself. Every obstacle that is thrown in her way of not being chosen, have him go with somebody else, forces her to go through the emotional evolution of picking herself up and realizing, I choose me. That's what it is. Steve is completely loving because that is what we needed to do to get Miranda to drop her act. She needed to be with someone that would allow her true soft side to come out. Aiden was there to prove to be the 100% acceptance of Carrie. Everything she did he loved, except the fact that she was still attached to Big. So each of the guys that came, Trey, uh, Charlotte's guy was there to prove to Charlotte that she was barking up the wrong tree. She was following a thought rather than who she really needed, which was love, not the way someone looked. And then Harry came in to prove to her the furthest place that she would ever have gone in the first season is this other type of a man, and he wound up being the love of her life. The guys were specifically orchestrated so that the women could have an evolution. And Samantha's two men and her significant man, Richard Wright, was there to be everything she thought she needed and then not and then smith was there just because his child and it brought out her ability to let someone in and he was of a new generation who wasn't threatened or pushed away by her rules he's the young new guy those new guys of that generation who are much more open and not so archetypically male as the other guys were i mean mr big is one thing smith jared is another Am I making sense? Yeah. They were all there for them. Would Carrie have gone with Big if he chose her right away? No. And if she had, she wouldn't have become the person she is. She wouldn't have become the person she is. The very last line, the very last line after six years that I wrote in the series, is the most important evolution to me for all the characters, but especially for the audience. I cared so much about the audience. And the line is... The real love affair is the one you have with yourself. And if you find somebody else who loves you, well, that's just fabulous. I didn't want to do six years of waving the individual outsider banner for everyone watching the show who related to these women and then say, 
it's a happy ending because a man loves you. It isn't. It's a happy ending because you love you. And then maybe somebody else will love you. That's my particular evolution in life too. That's why this series was so great for me. And for all the writers that wrote it, we were all evolving and trying to get to the point where the four ladies eventually got, which is self-love, self-acceptance. And the great thing about dating and the great thing about the comedy of the series is, you know, it's a field of broken glass. Jesus, every time you get near him, you turn into this pathetic, needy, insecure victim. And the thing that pisses me off the most is that you're more than willing to go right back for more. I am not going back for more, and I can't even believe... I can't believe you would say that to me. If you start up with Big again... I am not starting up with Big again! Well, if you do, I don't want to know anything about it. I mean it, Carrie. No calls, no crying. Oh, what are you going to do, Miranda? Are you going to cut me out of your life like you did to Steve? What? The first sign of any little weakness or flaw, and you just write people off! My God, Miranda, you are so judgmental! Sex in the City, the dialogue is very rich in character. and But I don't think people realize Big was a real character part. For, I mean, I can believe someone would cast John Corbett as his part because, you know, as making furniture and stuff. And, and John has that right away when you meet him, that really good guy. If he was a public school science teacher in second grade, would he be able to get her? Interesting. Did the financial part of the mm-hmm. relationship between Carrie and Big, was that ever something that caused you pause or that you wanted to think about in a different way? Not really, and I'll I'll tell you why. I feel like mostly because that's who Carrie was. I mean, Carrie was had like a laundry list of faults or shortcomings or even... We didn't really see it, though, because we liked her and we liked We liked her enough to forgive her those shortcomings, as the Bible says or something. But, you know, she was drawn to the finer things. She, you know, Aiden was a different sort of man. I think Michael Patrick was really trying mm-hmm. to offer up another kind of human being for Carrie. But she needed that order, I think, to have <laughs> Big first. Yeah. Like, she couldn't have gone to Aiden first. Right. I don't know if it's his sexuality or if it's his disposition and it's his affinity for his female friendships and the affection. Like, you know, he's been surrounded by women his whole life. His mothers, his sisters, his best friends are more women than men. And I think for some reason, he saw himself in Carrie. It's not that he imagined himself and fantasized, but when he sat down to write Carrie, for him, it was like like some kind of bath. Like, it, it just came. It's not that he didn't work hard, but it, he loved it. It came so easily. He loved exploring Carrie's inner life, her exterior life. Like, it, he loves female stories. He likes the interactions of women. And I don't know that it's necessarily his sexuality, because I've worked with a lot of gay writers, men who aren't as good at that, or don't connect in the way that Michael did. And I don't know that Darren connected in that way. I think Darren connected to the idea. Michael connected to Carrie. I mean, he always said, like, he just loved writing her. And sometimes, like, it was created a clash on the set because he would, it's like almost like magical. Like, it would go from his brain. I used to make a joke and say, like, you sit down at the computer and you're just, like, downloading. It's like, it's like all these thoughts, they come straight from his brain through his, you know, neck, his shoulders, his arms, and they just miraculously... But there were times that he would hear it so clearly, and if I couldn't repeat how he heard it, 
it was a conflict. And I would say to him, I can't be Michael Patrick doing Carrie. I can only be me doing Carrie. Like, because Michael has a musicality, and it wasn't often, but I could tell when I wasn't like hitting something for him. And I would have to say to him, I can't do my version of you, your version of Carrie. And I don't mean he was obsessed or anything. I think he just really loved writing that. It's a great part, you know? And you could do anything with her, really. Because she didn't, conventional rules didn't apply to her. Life's conventions didn't apply to her. So it was like, do anything. It wasn't about the money. It was about the ideal of the shark of a man. And the real thing that people were drawn to, women in the audience, everyone seemed to have a man that was perfect in a male way who they couldn't land. And that was the thing. And Chris Noth's Mr. Big had a genuine twinkle, genuine sweet twinkle in that black inkiness that made it safe and irresistible. But he really is the big bad wolf. He started out as that. It wasn't about the money. I mean, that's nice that he had a great house. It's she about did success. kind of like it, though. Success. A clear idea of who he was in the world. A man who knew who he was and was a success chooses you. Therefore, you are not an outsider. If Mr. New York chooses you, you're... I mean, this is the great flaw that we worked with, then you are worthy. If a perfect man, who's imperfect, of course, chooses Carrie, which he never saw her till the very end, it means that she's not an outsider. She's not the curly-haired Katie girl from the way we were story. She's special. But is part of that formula then the fact that he's still a little bit inaccessible that he's not the chase is endemic to that whole like his mystique i mean he was gorgeous he was financially independent but i think at the end of the day the difference between big and aiden it wasn't the finances it was the sense of how big the world could be and i think carrie likes living in a very big world there's a secret weapon in the show, which is we never made guys bigger assholes than the ladies were. A lot of the relationships, the ladies were the problem in the downfall. Like, it wasn't a man-bashing show. It was a relationship-bashing show. And all the sex was there for comedy. It's an interesting thing because male, woman, it doesn't matter. Anyone in a relationship is in a process of... Is it me? Is it them? Is it me? Is it them? What are my needs? What are their needs? What are my needs? What are their needs? All the time. Straight men, gay men, straight women, gay women, everybody's kind of always trying to figure out, like, how do I be me in this thing? And that was the fun of the show. I mean, it was so thrilling to write. You were single at the time? Yes. I mean, my joke was this show should be called No Sex in the City for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> but if you were, like, on a date with somebody and something crazy happened... Was there like a duality to it where you were having to deal with that, but then all of a sudden in the back of your head thinking, hey, you know, this could be a great element in a script? 
Yeah, I mean, it was this crazy thing where it was what we all started to notice as the show got bigger was not only were I mean, most of the time we were just wanting to come in and talk about our date and did he like us and what did each of us think about what had happened? Could you help me decipher and splice out the phone call? So we were legitimately using each other as friends and sounding boards. But what does this show have to offer men and why might it be important that men understand some of the things that were going on here? Well, look, I think I knew a lot of men who did watch the show. I knew a lot of men. I only watched it because my wife or girlfriend made me. And look, for sure, we were writing the men from the perspective that we had as women, which was, what is this, you know, mystery wrapped up in enigma trying to tell me? And oftentimes, like what we thought they were trying to tell us was not all that complicated. I mean, Greg Behrens, he's just not that into you, was such an unbelievably painful revelation for most of us in the room. I mean, for Liz, it was like it freed her because she was finally like, oh, my God, I got it. For me, I was like, that can't possibly be true. (laughs) So we were writing the men from our sort of perspective of these are opaque people who we can't fully understand, but we are in real intimate relationships with. We did have Greg Barrett come most seasons to sort of talk us through like the mystery of what we were managing as dating women. And it was fascinating for us and kind of horrifying or exciting, depending. But I think at the end of the day, the show was from the perspective of these four women and how confusing dating is. So I think the men who were watching it, A, they were watching women I think they thought were kind of pretty or sexy or funny. And some men liked Miranda, some men liked Samantha, some men liked Carrie, some men liked Charlotte. Like, I think similar to women, how they felt like, who am I? I was always interested in when men revealed which character they found most appealing. And I think in a way, the way that we were sort of working out, like, what are these men actually trying to say to us? I think for men, it gave them a perspective on, you know, when you leave a date, this is the thing women are actually thinking. So if you like her, do this. Or if you are just frightened of us now, that's okay, too. (laughs) So hopefully it gave men a little bit of an inside perspective on what we were going through. And hopefully they were seeing a little bit of some funny sex stuff that made them laugh or made them think, oh, my God, that happened to me. With HBO in our studio, well, they're kind of two separate things. HBO always had final say, but I can't even begin to describe how comfortable that was for us. It didn't mean we didn't fight for an extra 30 seconds on the cut or an extra minute and a half on the cut. Or Michael Patrick just didn't say, I'm sorry, it's coming in. It's coming in at 34 minutes. Not touching it. And then Carolyn would say, Mike, Mike. He'd say, no, click. Then Warner Brothers inherited us because they absorbed the studio. I was like, poor Warner Brothers inherited like, you know, eight grown children. It's like they adopted a grown-up. And we were like, well, no, this is who we are. We appreciate the shelter and the food and the fact that you're paying our electrical bills, but this is how we work. And everybody had to make compromises, and that was a real lesson for us. They, of course, had final cut in a way, but that, too, became a very, very good working relationship. And that was put on, like, the fast track to get to know each other. That was like a courtship that was so collapsed in time. I never thought it was going to work because we were coming from HBO to Warner Brothers, you know, and they were like, wait, what do you mean you have thoughts about your poster? And we were like, not only do we have thoughts about the poster, we have thoughts about 
the hand, the ring, the purse, that building, that window light in the back, like we've only ever worked that way. So we also had to learn to function with a studio, like a big studio, in this way. I mean, I've worked with big studios, but I was just an active hire. It never felt like it got in the way of the work that I was doing on camera because it just, for so long, was just a part of how I functioned on that show. I loved it, too, because I think I felt responsible to and for so many people that I felt like it was this very special place to be. You know, I felt responsible for the crew and their families and people's lives and people promoting from within and growing people in the company and growing people in the crew and moving a camera loader to assistant on C camera, to assistant on B camera, to operator on B camera. People talk about like, oh my God, I have a 60 hour week. No, we had 100 hour weeks and they included all night till the sun rose in the shoes. But we were not allowed to complain. And I, I totally get that. You know, like, we wanted people to enjoy it. We didn't want people to be thinking about that we were exhausted and whatever. But now we can say, you know, I mean, a 100-hour week it is a lot. It's a lot. And you're trying to have a life in any way. Like, the fact that anyone kept any relationship going, my hat is off to them. I personally did not. But they did. And good for them. The third season was the year. So, like, we did 13 without anyone seeing anything, right? So that kind of almost didn't count because no one knew we existed, really. Then we did the second season, which I don't remember that much. I think it was one of the seasons Charlotte was just like guy to guy to guy. And also I had those weird speeches about wanting to get married and whatever with books and weird things. And then the third season was like we shot a lot. I want to say 21 maybe? Like we shot and shot and shot, filmed and filmed and filmed. And we were exhausted. It was an amazing Coming to work every day on the TV show was incredible. Not only was there this incredible characters, like every great actor in New York, you were always looking your best. You were shooting in these fantastic locations. The hard thing about it, I have to say, was the crazy awful hours we shot. Like every day was 15 to 18 hours. We almost never had a day less than 15 hours, and we had some really, you know, mammoth, like 20-hour days. We had one day where we shot a 24-hour day. It's almost inconceivable. So I would say that the only downside was how crazy that was, because also you would start at like 5 in the morning on Monday, and you would work until like 8 in the evening on Monday night. So then they couldn't call you in until eight in the morning. So you would start later and later and later each day so that by Friday, you were coming in at like 5 p.m. and you were shooting till like eight in the morning or later, Saturday. How was I supposed to know that you love a finger in your ass is the one thing you can't say to a man in bed? Trust me, that's not the only thing. But it's true, he enjoys it. So do a lot of men. Well, no, they enjoy it, they just don't want it brought to their attention. Personally, I don't like anything in my ass. <laughs> Once again, here's writer-producer Amy Harris. That writing staff and Michael in particular were such an unbelievably supportive group of people. I mean, I remember before my first table read of the first script I wrote, Michael sat up with me until 2.30 in the morning helping craft jokes just to make sure the table read went perfectly because he wanted it to be a huge success for me. What episode was that? I think it was Ring-A-Ding-Ding, which is the episode where Charlotte gives her engagement ring to Carrie. It was funny because that was really one of the only, we, the writer's room, that was like one of our biggest fights. 
you know, people are funny when it comes to money is what we realized. Everybody sort of had a different point of view about asking for money, borrowing money, lending money. You know, we've had all these different conversations about all sorts of sort of topics that are potentially, you know, can trigger people's anger or feelings. And for whatever reason, that was one that we really, we got into it. And Michael's whole thing was great. So somebody's perspective has to be that person's point of view and somebody's perspective has to be that person's point of view. We don't all have to agree on it. We don't all have to think Carrie's perfect or Carrie made the right decision. We can see her for exactly the flawed person she is and still love her. For those people who haven't been in a writer's room or weren't in that writer's room, when you say a fight, is it like people, like literally, do they become passionate, angry, talk over each other? How would you describe it? Well, we were a family, fully and truly. There was, you know, by season four, there was six of us, and that was the group that sort of took us through to the end. And it was a really close group. I mean, we lost one of our writers to cancer during that time. We were in it as family. So we would have passionate family discussions regularly about characters and what they should do and how we felt about things. But that money conversation was really like, I will hate Carrie if she does that. I will never want to see her again if she asks for money. And so it it was a more passionate talking over each other. We were always sort of respectfully talking at basically like, I wouldn't call it a dinner table because it was many more hours than that. But we were always sort of engaged in big conversation because really the show was about everything that was intimate in our lives. So we really had to trust one another and know if we told an embarrassing story or intimate story about our personal life that we were in a safe room. So, but that was really heated. Sex in the City was really specific. Every project you do is different. I am smart enough to know that you don't hit a zeitgeist worldwide phenomenon ever again. I did the comeback since then, which became a very unique, very critically impactful smart show about television. Each show is going to have its own unique thing. Two Broke Girls became a big syndicated laugh thing. They all have their things. The one thing that I think that is a real challenge is the time of Sex and the City. Success in that time is unparalleled. That doesn't exist anymore. So if you feel like you're not hitting that, that's confusing. Like, the fact that we would go to work on Monday and know that the entire country watched our show last night on a Sunday creates such uh, energy that as the audiences become more splintered and tinier, it's almost as if a show falls in the forest and no one sees it, doesn't even register. And to have been on a show that was so big that there were parties in Helsinki and Brazil and London, even Russia and Japan. They fainted in front of the Kristen in Japan. Girls fainted in front of Kristen Davis when we did the movie premiere in Japan. That kind of thing can never happen again. But the individual small quality of what you're working on, the uniqueness of putting everything you feel and think into a show is the only way you can go. Next on Origins, Sex in the City, Episode 3, we'll talk about the decision to end the series, fashion with a capital F, 
and cast harmony and disharmony as the show jumps to the big screen for not one, but two movies, which surpassed all expectations at the box office. But whoever said the third time is the charm hadn't cleared that with Kim Cattrall. Thanks as always to Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, Nick Freeman, Lauren Cohen, Pam Kramer, Josephina Francis, and the rest of the team at Cadence 13. And specifically to my chief tormentor, Chris Basil, whose obsessive compulsiveness to detail comes close only to my own. And my partner in the studio, whose hair now officially has its own zip code, Terrence Malangone. Finally, thanks to all of you for listening to us in your homes, cars, through your headphones, vapes, and toaster ovens. We're doing this for you. So if you have any thoughts you'd like to share, please feel free to hit me up at james at jamesandrewmiller.com. For Origins, this is Jim Miller. Cheers. Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.